So last week, we dealt with a difficult text, a very difficult text. This week, we deal with a text that is eminently reasonable to us as Westerners. This is because uh, common law, British common law, was uh, derived largely from the scriptures by way of a principle known as general equity. General equity means that it's not um, simply the specific situations which are described in the old covenant civil law which are applicable and ought to guide our dealings as a society. But we think about what's the underlying principles and we apply them cross-culturally to our modern society in various ways. And though um, Barbados is um, uh, self-governing, we're still a commonwealth country, we still have a governor general, and of course the roots are British. And so, just as it is with Canada, so it is with Barbados, British common law is uh, very much a part of our legal system. As opposed to, say for example, some countries um, elsewhere in the world, so we cast no aspersions on any specific country. Let me take an example from Aladdin, where he, I think it's in Aladdin, he steals an apple and the guy goes to cut off his hand. This would not be according to the principle of general equity. That wouldn't happen in a British Commonwealth country because uh, there is a sense that the punishment should fit the crime, which we'll talk about a little bit more uh, later on. The first thing that I want to point out as we look at this passage, and by the way, there's, there's no meaningful connection between this week and last week. There may not be any meaningful connection between this week and next week. We, we, we've reached a point in our Old Covenant series where um, I'm just basically trying to find a good passage that helps shed a little more light on the Old Covenant week by week. I haven't sketched out the series beforehand, and I'm kind of flying by the seat of my pants in terms of what I'm preaching week by week. Um, so last week we were in the beginning of Exodus 21, and as I was thinking what to preach on this particular week, I, I thought to myself, well, why not continue on? Um, so we'll probably look at the next couple chapters of Exodus and draw out some stuff, and then we'll probably flip around to Deuteronomy and Leviticus and various places until I feel that we've adequately treated this and it's time to wrap it up. Um, so the first, the first principle that I want to outline tonight or address tonight, rather, is the principle of restitution. Restitution, Kevin DeYoung says, makes perfect sense and is, eminent, is imminently, I think he means to say eminently, or maybe I wrote it down wrong, is eminently biblical when the person who cheated pays back the person whom they cheated. That's a very biblical principle. Uh, that quote that I just shared with you comes from Kevin DeYoung's review of a book called Reparations by Duke Kwan and Gregory Thompson who are arguing for uh, reparations with respect to race-based issues in the U.S. And Kevin DeYoung goes on to say, the problems come when Kwan and Thompson apply this straightforward principle of restitution in their own words, quote, when you take something that does not belong to you, love requires you to return it, 
end quote, and apply it to an evil as far off as slavery or a sin as nebulous as white supremacy. Now, this is not a sermon on reparations or race issues or anything like that, but I just want to point out that just because restitution is in principle a good thing, it doesn't therefore follow that every single kind of restitution that is suggested is equally valid or, or just as biblically based or just as biblically derived. We find even in the text that we just read some limitations uh, to restitution. We, we read, uh, for example, in verse 11, the owner shall accept the oath and he shall not make restitution. Or verse 13, he shall not make restitution for what has been torn. Or in verse 15, if the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. So restitution in and of itself is a perfectly valid principle, but we still need to be just and equitable in our application of the concept of restitution. That larger conversation is a conversation for another day. But I just do want to point out that we ought not to pendulum swing so far away, say, for example, from what, in my view, is a misapplication of the concept of restitution or reparations to say that there is no place whatsoever for restitution or reparations. Sometimes, under certain circumstances, this is actually the correct response to an injustice that has been committed. Restitution, or reparations, if you will, is in itself a good principle. And we see it outlined here very clearly in this text. What I want to point out next is that there were very severe penalties for willful crime. In chapter 22 and verse 1, it says, If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. Now, I just alluded to the idea that the punishment should fit the crime. So you might say, well, how come five oxen for just only one ox? Or how come four sheep for only one sheep? Well, imagine if the penalty was if you steal something and you got caught, you got to pay it back. Well, if you need a sheep, then you can go try to steal one. And if you get away with it, great, you got a free sheep. And if you didn't, you're only out the price of a sheep anyway. So it's sort of like a win-win situation. At worst, you're going to have to pay fair market value. But at best, you get a free sheep. The penalty here imposed fits the crime uh, in the sense that it is indeed a crime to steal someone's sheep and that there needs to be a fitting, not, not just a fitting restitution or a, a fitting reparation attached to the crime, but there also needs to be a fitting disincentive to the crime. And so this is why we see a... Uh, multiple repayment of the original item that was stolen. Some might ask why it's five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. And the best answer that I read is that the ox was actually a working animal, whereas the sheep are not working animals. And so you can, you can operate your farm even if you're missing a sheep, but you can't operate your farm if you're missing an ox. And so a sheep could go missing for a couple days, and then when you find it, you just get it back. And it's not really any harm to your business in the meantime, or to your livelihood in the meantime. But if, if your ox, who you're counting on to 
pull the plow goes missing, then all of a sudden your operations grind to a standstill in the meantime while you look for the missing ox. And so this seems to be why there's a more severe penalty attached to the ox as opposed to being attached to the sheep. Let me point out again in verse 7. If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe, and it is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. So again, if somebody steals something, then he has to pay back not just what was stolen, but more than what was stolen. And the idea here is that the thief is trying to enrich himself at the cost of, at someone else's cost. And if he's caught, there needs to be an appropriate disincentive attached to that. And so he actually ends up paying back more than he stole in the first place. So that in trying to enrich himself, he actually impoverishes himself. And so is disincentivized from stealing again. And so there is this, the harshest penalty is reserved for willful crime. And this is uh, in contrast to simple restitution for negligence. So restitution still needs to be made if an animal goes missing or something like that. Restitution still needs to be made because somebody is still out an animal. But in a case where it is an issue of negligence as opposed to willful crime, the penalties attached are less. So in 33 to 36, we read uh, about a couple of different incidents or a couple of different possibilities of what might happen. Verse 33, when a man opens a pit or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. He shall give money to its owner and the dead beast shall be his. So you see there's no like double, fourfold, fivefold restitution in a case like this. The man in digging a pit, perhaps um, he was working on irrigation or starting to dig a foundation for a, a new structure or something. For whatever reason, he's digging a pit on his property, he's drilling down to find water, whatever. He wasn't trying to kill an animal, but he, he was negligent in not covering up the pit. The civil law of ancient Israel expected people uh, not only to not go out and do crimes, but also to take uh, due caution or exercise due caution in making sure that nobody and nobody's property is inadvertently injured or compromised as a result of their actions. Or in 35, when one man's ox butts another so that it dies, they shall sell the live ox and share its price, and the dead beast also they shall share. So my ox butts your ox so that your ox dies, then we're going to sell my live ox, split the money, and then we're going to split the meat from the dead animal. This is, no, this is not really, this is not really um, an issue where I have willfully done something wrong to you, but, but nevertheless, you're out an ox because of the actions of my ox. And so something still ought to be done. I should bear some responsibility in that matter. But you notice that it's one ox for one ox. And so the economic loss is shared between you and I. 
in a case like that. It's not like, well, you know, my ox is still standing, so, you know, tough luck. Hope you uh, can find another ox at a good price at the market next week. Good luck. No, on the contrary, you're out an ox, and so even if I need my live ox, too bad, we're gonna have to sell it, split the money, I'm gonna have to have the inconvenience of trying to find another ox, you're gonna have to have the inconvenience also of finding another ox, but both of us are gonna have half the price of an ox uh, to put towards it, and both of us are gonna have some meat uh, to consume among our family in the meantime. We see in verse 36, however, that if my ox, for example, has been accustomed to gore in the past, and I didn't keep it in, then I'm going to bear actually more responsibility in a case like that. So if my ox kills your ox, right, and we both need an ox for plowing our fields, what's going to happen is I'm going to give you the live ox. So you now have an ox to plow your fields. I get the meat from the dead animal, but now I got to go out and find a live ox to plow my ground. And so there is a little bit extra responsibility put on me because of my negligence in that respect. Again, though, we see this one-for-one principle in acts in incidents of negligence as opposed to a fourfold or a fivefold or a double principle, which would apply in acts of willful crime. Or we see in verses 5 and 6, if a man causes a field or a vineyard to be grazed over or lets his beasts loose and it feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the best in his own field and in his own vineyard. So if I let my sheep come and eat up your grass or if I don't keep my dog kenneled up and he comes out and kills one of your chickens, well, the responsibility is on me to make restitution for that. I can't just say, well, dogs will be dogs, you know, or sheep will be sheep and whatever. I have a responsibility to make sure that my animals don't infringe upon your resources. Verse 12. If it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. So if you lend me your sheep and then somebody comes and steals it from me, I have to make restitution to you. So I can't just say, well, it was stolen. There's nothing I I can do about it. I need to bear some responsibility in that matter. So let me bring this, um, I'm not going to say into uh, the modern context because there still are farmers in the modern context, obviously, but not all of us are farmers. So let me give you another example. This past week, this past uh, Thursday, I borrowed a saw from one of my friends because I realized that I needed it for a particular project I was working on. And these things are running like $1,500 to $2,000 at the um, hardware store. So I was blown away by that price. I'm not going to go spend that much money to make eight cuts that I needed to make. So I asked my friend if I could borrow a saw. Now, what happens if that saw is stolen from me? Well, my friend is out a $1,500 to $2,000 tool. And should I just say, well, sorry, it was stolen. 
To the contrary, I need to take some responsibility for that. It was stolen well under my care. He lent it to me expecting that he's going to get it back. And so I need to um, do unto others as I would have them do unto me and make sure that when he lends me his saw, he gets it back one way or another. Verse 14. If a man borrows anything of his neighbor and it is injured or dies, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. So again, if I borrow something, I'm, I'm expected to take good care of it. If I borrow a tool, for example, and misuse it such that it breaks, then again, I need to be on the hook for that because my friend is expecting to get back that saw in good condition. So there are more severe penalties for willful crime, less severe penalties for negligence, but there still is an understanding that negligence is culpable and that it's not just neither here nor there. You can't just say, well, I didn't actively destroy your property or it wasn't my intention to destroy your property. If you've been negligent and you haven't set up the proper precautions, you're still culpable for that. And you still have to take some responsibility for that. Matthew Henry says, It is not enough for us not to do mischief ourselves, but we must take care that no mischief be done by those who it is in our power to restrain, whether man or beast. So I need to make sure, for example, again, to use a real-life illustration, I need to make sure, for example, that my dogs don't get out of the yard and go bite someone. I need to make sure that my dogs don't get out of the yard and go kill someone's chickens. And if they do, I need to bear some responsibility for that. This is what is being espoused here in this chapter. Again, we're not talking about God's moral law, um, which is the ideal, which is the bullseye that we're all aiming at. We're looking at the civil law, which is how the society runs, how the society functions. And um, God has set up ancient Israel in such a way that there is a gradation of culpability. There are different levels of culpability, uh, ranging from negligence at the bottom, where yes, you're culpable, but it was inadvertent, so there's less responsibility that you bear in a situation like that, all the way up to more severe crime. This is a principle that is very much part of our uh, British Commonwealth legal system. There is this sense that the punishment should fit the crime. And so it works itself out in various ways. Obviously the circumstances differ in, in various uh, situations, but the task of the judge is to figure out how principles like this apply to our modern society. And this is the way that, that the legal system has been set up in British Commonwealth countries. The penalties should fit the crime. We see this again in the gradations of culpability, all the way from negligence to willful acts of crime. We see this also, interestingly, in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 22. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. 
But if the sun has risen on him, which implies that verse 2 was speaking about a robbery that happens at night. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. So what this means is if somebody breaks in at night in ancient Israel, you can kill him. And there's no legal culpability for that. But if it's daytime, you can't kill him. You see? So again, there's this, it's not, it's not just this sweeping generalization, but you have to take the circumstances into account. If, if it's the middle of the night and you find somebody in your house and you strike him, obviously you wouldn't shoot him back in the ancient world, but let's say you strike him with a blunt object and he dies, uh, there's no blood guilt. You, you can't see at night as well whether he has a weapon in his hand. Um, you're assuming if he's coming at 2 o'clock in the morning that he has no legitimate business with you and with your household. Uh, there are various factors that play in to how severely you can punish this person for the trespass. Whereas, let's say, for example, it's the middle of the day, uh, you're hanging out clothing on your line out back behind your house, you've left the front door unlocked, and you come inside and somebody's standing just inside the doorway, hello, hello, you can't go over and strike them dead. Even though they really shouldn't have wandered into your house, you still have to weigh up the circumstances. And it may be that somebody is coming by to sell something or to ask you a question or in the middle of the day they might have some legitimate business with you. The door was unlocked so they didn't smash it open or pry it open, whatever. You have to take into account the circumstances. The penalty should fit the crime. And we see this again in our modern legal system with the distinction between first degree murder, second degree murder, manslaughter. Situations are taken into account. If you go into somebody's house and kill someone in their own bed, you're going to be charged with first degree murder. If somebody comes into your house in the middle of the night and you kill them, you may be charged with a crime, but I guarantee it won't be first degree murder. Because the judge will take into account the circumstances that apply and pertain to the situation. Another principle that we see in this passage is that sometimes things happen and it's no one's fault. Verses 10 and 11. If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep it safe and it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing it, an oath by the Lord shall be between them both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath, and he shall not make restitution. So this is distinguished from verse 14, where it says, If anyone borrows anything of his neighbor, and it is injured or dies, his owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. This is distinguished as follows. If I say to somebody, can I borrow your ox because I need to plow my field? That's different than someone saying, hey, I'm going on a trip. Can I bring my ox over to your house and leave it with you for safekeeping? If the ox gets sick and dies when I've borrowed it, I bear more responsibility than if the ox gets sick and dies while I'm doing my neighbor a favor by caring for it. So, as it might apply to a, a modern day situation, say for example, if I was boarding someone's dog for them while they were traveling, 
I'm helping them out. I'm assisting them. The dog gets sick and dies. I bear less culpability than if it was a situation um, where I had asked somebody for whatever reason, can I borrow your dog for a few weeks? Right? Let's say I didn't have big old sheriff guarding my house and there had been some crime in the neighborhood and I asked someone if I could borrow a big dog. And then under those circumstances, he gets sick and dies. I bear more responsibility than if I'm doing somebody a favor by watching over their animal for them. So there is some recognition here that sometimes things happen and it's nobody's fault per se. If you've taken reasonable precautions and something just happened and it's beyond your control. Verse 13 uh, speaks to the same sort of thing. If it is torn by beasts, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn. So again, let's say if I am uh, boarding somebody's very little dog and a troop of monkeys come and assault the little dog and kill it. Well, that's not necessarily my fault. Things happen. Right? So you can kind of see all of these laws actually make very good sense to us. There's nothing that is really shocking culturally in this section. This is civil law which makes perfect sense to us as modern Westerners because of the roots of British common law um, in a uh, worldview informed by the scripture and bringing over God's law to modern society by way of general equity. I will um, just note this last principle here before we bring things uh, to a uh, landing. This last principle is this. Justice doesn't swing to the other pendulum. So, we don't, just because something has been done to somebody, let me, let me sorry, let me, I, I have less notes tonight than normal, so I'm thinking on my feet here. Let me, let me try again to bring this over. What we see here in, in this section of scripture is the principle of justice. What's fair? What's equitable? The person who has been wronged doesn't just have free license to demand whatever they wish of the person who has wronged them. So, again, even if I find a thief breaking in in the day, I can't just kill him at the drop of a hat and say, well, whatever, he was breaking in. In ancient Israel, the Lord would condemn that and put blood guilt upon me. I would be guilty before the Lord for murder. In a case where, all things being equal, I find just a petty thief in my house and kill him. It doesn't just, it doesn't justify any and all reaction. Even if somebody has wronged me legitimately in some way. There are limitations to how far I can go in responding 
even to a crime committed against me. And so justice protects not only the victim, but also the perpetrator of a crime. If somebody steals an ox, he's expected to repay fivefold, but not tenfold. If somebody steals a sheep, he's expected to pay back fourfold, but not sell himself into slavery. If somebody borrows an animal and it's injured or dies because of his negligence, he has to repay the equivalent to the person that he borrowed that animal from, but not more. So if the saw was damaged somehow over the next couple of days before I give it back to its owner, and let's say he was real mad at me, and I needed, obviously, to go buy him a new saw, but he said, well, I was planning to do this project in the meantime, and I want you to buy me a saw and also a drill, and also build me a brand new workbench, and also get me all these new vice clamps. And there's a point at which even I'm protected, though I'm at fault, by justice. This is what I mean when I say justice doesn't swing to the other pendulum. Just because somebody was wrong in some measure, to some extent, in some instance, it doesn't mean that they're perpetually and unforgivably wrong forever and punished to the utmost extent humanly possible in perpetuity for the rest of their lives. Justice is given out in measure. And this is uh, an important principle as we think about applying justice even in today's society. Even as we think about, for example, COVID regulations, if somebody violates a public health order, they bear some legal culpability. But, uh, for example, I find it grossly disproportionate, for example, when they locked up a father and his son for a year for selling food during one of the lockdown periods. I find that ridiculous. And I find that unjust. Because it's very hard for me to understand how the punishment fits the crime in that sense. To me, if anything, that's like a person who stole an ox and is asked to pay back a thousand oxes in return. You've got to say something is not right here. Justice is not guiding the application of the law on this particular issue. We could apply it to all sorts of other uh, different situations, and that is our task. Um, certainly, it's the task of the lawmakers and the law enforcers to apply this to a thousand different situations. But it's also incumbent upon us as citizens to think about what is real justice. It's incumbent upon us as Christians as we think through our individual dealings with one another, uh, business relationships, so on and so forth, to be clear about what justice is and what justice isn't. After all, what did the prophet Micah say? What does the Lord require of thee? Do justice. Well, what is justice? This is an important question, and there's a lot of 
ambiguity and lack of clarity with respect to what is justice. Ironically, in the midst of present conversations about social justice. Let's define what justice is uh, as we go about correctly the pursuit of justice. We need to define what is justice if we are to do justice. And if justice is mercy, then there's no difference between saying do justice and love mercy. Tim Keller, a number of years ago, said, mercy is something that we owe our neighbor. The Gospel Coalition Foundation documents have similar language. I didn't think to go look it up and write it down before uh, this sermon. But there's a similar phrase in the foundation documents of the Gospel Coalition which has made Pastor Chris and I hesitate from formally joining up with the Gospel Coalition. Though we respect and we appreciate many of the men involved and much of what the Gospel Coalition puts out, there's a phrase very similar to what Tim Keller said. Something like, mercy, we owe mercy to our neighbor. And that's a conflation of justice and mercy. Now, Pastor Chris and I, I think, love mercy. We hope we do. We aspire to love mercy. And we love justice. We want to do justice and we want to love mercy. But it's also very important to us to keep justice and mercy distinct. And likewise, you ought to keep justice and mercy distinct in your minds. If in a situation as described here in Exodus 21, Somebody who was owed restitution said, don't worry about it. It's okay. Would that be justice or would that be mercy? Mercy. Of course. And so, if, if, for example, something happened to this saw, and I went and apologized to my friend and told him, you know, but, you know, you're going to have to show me mercy. Would that be just? No. That would be unjust. Mercy is not something I can demand from him. Though, if it is something that he owes me, it would be something I could demand from him. Since it isn't, I couldn't go and say, you're going to have to show me mercy. I would have to say, I will make restitution. But if he, of his own volition, said, you know, it's okay, I actually was going to upgrade to a new saw anyway, that one's old, and it's fine, I got lots of money, I'm just rolling in cash, don't worry about it, that would be mercy, not justice, he doesn't owe that to me, there would be nothing unjust about him expecting me to make restitution, so we got to keep these things clear in our mind, what is owed is justice, What may be freely given or not is mercy. So if if a man's animal fell in his neighbor's pit and the man happens to know that his neighbor is poor and is struggling and is just really hustling hard to just barely scrape by and now the animal has fallen in this poor neighbor's pit 
And the man whose animal it was has several more of the animal and can bear the loss. He might choose to say, you know what? Don't worry about it, just please cover up the pit. If it happens again, you're gonna have to pay me back, but this first time, don't worry about it. That is what, justice or mercy? Mercy. Right. So keep, it's a really simple distinction, isn't it? But keep it clear. What the Lord is legislating here in this section of scripture is not mercy, but justice. And so the civil law is based on justice, not so much mercy. We'll explore some merciful aspects of civil law in due course. Can't say when it will be because I'm making up this, uh, the structure of this sermon series as I go. I'm not making up the content, by the way. I'm getting that from the Bible. But the structure of how we're progressing through the Old Covenant, um, I'm kind of doing it on the fly. So I can't say when it will be, but I intend to come to um, merciful aspects. Like, for example, when it says don't harvest your field right out to the very edges, but leave a little bit of the corners and the edges for the poor in the land. That is a merciful thing that is part of the Old Covenant. We'll get to it in due time. But what we see here in this passage is God insisting upon just dealings and fair and equitable restitution and reparations within the nation that he has established at Sinai. Now, coming in for a landing, our justice systems always get it exactly right, correct? (laughs) Does, Does the Canadian system always get it exactly right? The Barbadian system? The U.S. system? No, of course. None of, none of these systems get it exactly right. Um, we live in a world where justice does not always prevail in the here and now. But here is the hope that we have, is that Christ is returning to make all things new. And there will be not a disembodied, ethereal atmosphere in which our spirits will float with Christ forever. But we will live with Him in the new heavens and the new earth, in our glorified bodies, where righteousness dwells, where justice prevails. There will be nobody oppressed and downtrodden in the eternal kingdom. We read in Psalm 72 about Christ's coming reign. And it says in verses 12 to 14, For He delivers the needy when He calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy, and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence He redeems their life, and precious is their blood in His sight. Justice won't always be done in the here and now. But justice will ultimately be done. And every injustice that occurs in the here and now will have a reckoning at the return of Christ Jesus. And when Jesus gathers out of His kingdom all of the unrepentant wicked, and when we see Him and become like Him, And this process of sanctification comes 
to its culmination and we are made like Jesus in every respect, including without sin. There will be no need to shut the gates of Jerusalem. Because what are gates for? Protection. And there will be nothing to fear. We will live in a world where justice prevails under a king who sees to it with integrity and with power that justice prevails. Jesus will see to it as he rules and reigns that justice is always done in his eternal kingdom. This is a great encouragement to us and a great hope to us as we press on in a world where sometimes we have no legal recourse even when injustices have been perpetuated or are being perpetuated. Perhaps we don't have enough evidence. Perhaps there's a statute of limitations. Perhaps we don't have the financial means to engage in a legal battle. Perhaps we have our day in court and the judge rules unjustly. There are various ways in which we find our longing for justice frustrated in the here and now at various times and in various ways. But when Christ returns, He will set up a kingdom in which justice always prevails. And this is great hope for us as Christians. In the meantime, we need to make sure that we are rightly related to Christ Jesus. Otherwise, justice means sending us to hell. And so we need to make sure that we get right with Jesus and receive mercy for the offenses that we have committed against God and against our neighbor. It is the offended party who has the prerogative to show mercy or to withhold it. God is the one from whom we must seek mercy. And God has promised that in Christ He will be merciful to all who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so look to Christ, the offended party, for mercy before that day when he insists that justice be done universally, sweepingly, consistently, thoroughly to the ends of the earth, which will involve the gathering out of his kingdom, all who have not received mercy. And when he gives to them their just due by condemning them to the outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth.